Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us at 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. If you would, remain standing as we transition, as they return to their seats. You can grab your Bibles. We're going to read... Our sermon text today, we're going to continue in Acts, and what a wonderful joy that our text has led us to Pentecost Sunday, on Pentecost Sunday. We're going to be in Acts 2, 1 to 13. Give you another second while you turn those pages. Gives me a chance to rehearse some of these crazy words I got to read here. <laughs> Starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be, Thanks to, God. be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Man, what a big day. Child dedication, it's Memorial Day weekend, and it's Pentecost Sunday. Now, I imagine that there are a lot of church people in here, and um, if you're a church person, you know you, you, you just open Acts chapter 2 and you read those first few words, when the day of Pentecost came, you probably got some ideas about what that means. You know, um, one of, you know, if you know anything about my background, I won't go into any of that, but um, it's sad to me that a lot of times in the church world, in order to talk about Pentecostal power, you got to weed through a bunch of denominational minutia in order to get to the real essence of what the day of Pentecost was about, which was really the launch of the church age and worldwide evangelism, Right? 
You know, the, 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 there are denominations that claim Pentecostal as their distinctive. And a lot of times those distinctives are associated around one particular spiritual gift, speaking in tongues. And in many cases, the misappropriation of that spiritual gift. But that's not at all what the day of Pentecost was all about. Now, that's if you're a church person. You might be here, and you've heard it mentioned several times already this morning that today is Pentecost Sunday, and you're like, huh? What does that even mean? I've heard that there is such a denomination as Pentecostal, and they seem to be the crazy folks that swing from chandeliers and such, but I don't even know what that means, that it's Pentecost Sunday, right? Like you, you, you have no frame of reference, and then you hear a text read, and there's people, about 120 or so, gathered in a room somewhere, and suddenly there's like wind and fire and tongues and languages, and it's, it's all these weird names that Jonathan, I'd give him about a B-plus reading that, you know? Like, um, I'm just picking at you, man. Um, probably do better than me. What is this about? Well, let's just... Let's not assume that we all know or that at least we have the right perspective on it all. The, the feast, the, the day of Pentecost was actually a Jewish feast. The word Pentecost just means 50. Everybody say 50. Pentecost was a Jewish feast that took place 50 days after Passover. You might have heard of Passover. It was one of three Jewish feasts. There were seven total. It's one of three Jewish feasts that Jews and converts to Judaism were required in the ancient world to make the pilgrimage from wherever they lived to the holy city of Jerusalem to attend the feast. And that's what Luke tells us is going on. If you look at chapter 2, verse 5 again, he says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Why are they there? They're there for the feast. Much like Passover, Jews and converts to Judaism had gathered in Jerusalem on this day, on this significant day, right? One of the most significant events in redemptive history occurred on a day when people from everywhere had gathered in the city for the feast. Just a little parenthesis, what better day could God have picked to launch the church? All these people gathered in one place. Originally, Pentecost was known as the Feast of Weeks because it, it took place seven weeks after Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's also known as the Day of First Fruits, when the first fruits of the wheat harvest would be presented to God. That's intriguing to me. In fact, let's go back and read it. Leviticus chapter 23 Verses 9 to 16. If you don't know where Leviticus is, Leviticus is, it's the third book in your Bible. Some of the elders get on to me for this, but go to Genesis and take a right. You'll get there. After Exodus, before Numbers, Leviticus 23. Let's just read about the feast, beginning in verse 9. There's a lot going on here, but just see if you can catch why the Lord is doing this. Listen to what he says. Verse 9, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, 
You shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits. Everybody say first fruits. First fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you, have, when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your, of your God, it is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. If you pay attention, it's not really hard to see what God is doing there. He's saying through Moses, when you come into the land that I've promised you and you begin to harvest wheat in this land, this feast is going to serve as a reminder to you of what? This is my doing, Right? I've brought you here, I'm sustaining you, I'm providing for you, the harvest is mine. That's what God's saying through this feast, which is fascinating because here's what we know on the other side of this event that occurs right at the beginning of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls are going to be harvested into the kingdom of God. That's exactly what happens when this 120 are filled with the Holy Spirit on this day. Let's consider something else. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 13. We're talking about the original feast. It's a feast of harvest, a feast of first fruits. James writes and says, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Anybody identify with that? Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the natural human condition. We are tempted, we sin, and when we sin, we die. The wages of sin is God told Adam and Eve in the garden, don't eat the fruit of that tree. If you do, you will surely die. That's the natural human condition. Here's what's interesting. When God delivered Israel from Egyptian slavery on the very first Passover, you remember that? Ten plagues. The last one was the angel of death, kill the lamb, paint the blood on the doorpost. The angel of death will pass over you. Egypt, uh, the, the nation of Israel was spared. Every firstborn in Egypt died. The next morning, Pharaoh let them go. They go out, they go into the wilderness, and listen, about 50 days later, they arrive at Mount Sinai. Now, we, 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 we just rehearsed part of what happened. Ten plagues, God does a miraculous deliverance of slave, from slavery in Egypt. Something else happened between Egypt and Mount Sinai. Anybody remember what that was? Part the Red Sea. Armies of Egypt are swallowed up. They get to Mount Sinai 50 days later, and God's ready to give Moses the law. So Moses goes up on the mountain. God manifests his presence on the mountain. You might remember what that was like. It was pretty scary. Thunder, lightning, smoke, fire. 
The people of, of Israel trembled at the foot of the mountain, and the instruction that God gave through Moses was, don't get near the mountain. If you touch it, you're going to die. Because God's manifesting his presence here. And Moses goes up on the mountain, and God's given him the Ten Commandments, the law. And he's up there a while. A while. A while. And the people waiting at the foot of the mountain, they get impatient. We don't ever do that, do we? They get impatient. And you know what they do? They convince Aaron to build them an idol of all things. 50 days after this miraculous deliverance, after being brought through the Red Sea, Moses is up there a little while getting the law, getting the word of God for them. They get impatient and start worshiping a golden cow. Moses comes down the mountain and the wrath of God comes with him. 50 days after the first Passover, 3,000 people died. When Jesus, our Passover lamb, died, 50 days later, the Spirit's poured out and 3,000 are saved. God's a consistent God. This is a significant event. Jesus has died, He's been resurrected. He's ascended. We sung about that this morning. We sung about God being with us. He's alive in me. That is true. And this event is nothing less than confirmation of the fact that Jesus Christ is really alive. He's really present. He's really still doing stuff. And now God's going to empower the church, his people, which at this time is only 120. Just pause right there. How does, how does just a little band of 120 people launch a movement that even remotely has a chance of getting out of the first century, much less to May the 28th, 2023, Greer, South Carolina? Here we sit because the Spirit was poured out. So we're tempted, we sin, and we die. But if you're still in James, pick back up where we left off, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. How many of you are grateful God didn't leave us in our sin with a death sentence? Of his own will... I'm not teaching James, but I almost wish I was. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of what? Say it again. First fruits of his creatures. On the day of first fruits, on the day of Pentecost, on the feast of weeks, at a time when Israel had been commissioned by God to bring the first fruits of their harvest to him as a reminder. It's his harvest. It's his provision. God pours out his spirit, and the first fruits of the church age are born, and we too are the first fruits of God's new creation in Christ. 
Now, this begs us a question here. And I'm going to come back to this at the end, and we're going to come back to it some more next week. This is really a part one, part two on Pentecost that we're going to do over this Sunday and next. I want you just to ask yourself the question. You don't have to answer out loud. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, if you're saved, you know that you are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that we are, we are post-Pentecost Christians, okay? We live in the wake of this event that we're going to consider today. And in light of that fact, I just want us to ask ourselves, Christians, if you're not a believer, this doesn't apply to you yet. But if you're a Christian, ask yourself, am I an effective evangelist? Am I currently an effective evangelist? The word evangelist just means a proclaimer of good news. And how many of you know, Christians, we've got the best news in all the world? Are you an effective proclaimer of that good news? And if you are like me, if you're like me, there are times in my life where I honestly have to answer that question, no. And if that answer is no, the next question would be, why? Why is that? We're going to consider that question today some and, tomorrow, and next week more. But I want us just to keep that question in mind as we consider what happened on this day. All right? We're just going to look at the event. And then next week we're going to look at the sermon that Peter preaches after the event happens. But let's just look at the event and let's just keep this question. Am I an effective evangelist? Am I effectively participating with Jesus in his kingdom agenda, and seeing those who don't know Christ come to faith. On some level or another, that should be the, a part of every believer's experience. i got one amen. All right, let's look at the event. I might get some more amens after we look at it. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. That sound wild. Now, let me say this, okay? This is, what we just read, is a unique event. It's inaugural. It's not something that we should, believers, expect God to repeat like a formula, okay? It's, it's not something that we should expect these phenomena to repeat themselves exactly like this happened in that upper room in the first century, 50 days after Jesus died, okay? That's not the point of this. But I do think we need to consider what it is that God is doing. We know that 3,000 people got saved, right? But here's what I'll tell you. The events in this upper room were not for the people that got saved, They weren't. 
How do you know that, Bradley? Well, look, it is genius on God's part that he, that he chose to pour out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost because everybody's in town. Right? If you're gonna, if if the byproduct of this Pentecostal event is gonna be effective evangelism, namely three thousand people coming to Christ, then this is certainly a great time to do that. But for all intents and purposes, the people who get saved are eavesdroppers and what's going on in the upper room. This is not for them. In fact, if you were to try to argue that this was for them, let's just look at how they reacted to what was going on. Look at verse, verses 6 to 8 of Acts 2. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of each one of us, each one, each of us in his own native language. And skip down to verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're drunk. They're filled with new wine. So if this was for the outsiders, if the purpose of this phenomenon was for the outsiders, it wasn't very effective because they're confused. At best, they're confused. They know something's going on, but they don't know what. At worst, they think these guys have been drinking way early in the morning, because it's in the morning. This wasn't for them. The sermon that follows by an empowered Peter is for them. But the events in this room are God's empowering, and I'm going to argue, communicating work for the 120 that are in that upper room. He told his followers what? Wait in Jerusalem until the power comes. Because when the power comes, you're going to be my witnesses. So the, the event of the power coming is for the witnessing ones the ones who are going to bear witness. The bearing witness is for those who are outside, right? So this was for them. I said this last week. God is not into theatrics, I don't think. I don't think God is into meaningless pomp and circumstance, but God is a very effective audiovisual communicator. We saw that in the ascension last week. The spectacle of the ascension, Jesus lifting up off the ground, ascending into the heavens, and a cloud took him out of his disciples' sight. That was not to demonstrate that there is now space and time between Jesus and his followers. Because what? Jesus said, behold, I am with you. So he wasn't leaving. That's what a lot of people think the ascension is. Jesus said, peace out. No, the ascension was an effective audiovisual demonstration, not that Jesus was leaving, but that he was ascending to the position of all power and all authority. You tracking? So if that's what the kind of thing God does, what's he communicating here? Let's just look at the phenomena and see if we can figure out if this was for the people in the upper room, and God's 
doing an audiovisual communication to them while he's empowering them, what's he saying? Let's look at the phenomena one at a time. The first thing was what? Was what? Not wind, but the sound of wind. That's interesting. Luke says there was a sound like wind that filled the house. Luke doesn't say it filled the streets. It just filled the house. Now, they don't have airtight windows back in those days, so obviously the people outside heard it, but the sound was in the room, and it sounded like wind. So put yourself, go there with your imagination. You're a part of this 120, and you've heard Jesus say, I'm ascending to the Father. The Spirit's coming. Power's coming. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But wait, stay in the city until the power comes. So you're praying and waiting. We saw that last week, right? They were constantly praying, leaning in to what Jesus had promised them and doing exactly what he told them to do. Wait. And then suddenly, you hear what sounds like wind. I don't know about you, but last night was just raining. It's what my mom calls a good soaking rain. You know what we did? We opened our back sliding glass door, shut the screen door, and just listened to the rain. Isn't that awesome? When you hear something, you tend to look to see what you hear. So if you're in that upper room and you hear a sound like wind, what do you do? You look out the window to see, man, is the wind really picking up? But though you hear the sound, the trees aren't waving. There's no sign. There's no visual corroboration of the fact that there's actually wind blowing. So what do you conclude? Perhaps your mind goes back to what Jesus taught you. He's taught you that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, moves like wind, but he's not wind. Your mind might go to the fact that in both Greek and Hebrew, the word for spirit is the same word for wind. So maybe you're going, when you hear that sound, suddenly you're going, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the outpouring, the deeper, richer, gooder with the spirit that Jesus promised us. And then what's the second phenomenon? Tongues of fire. That's wild, right? Tongues of fire. When you see this, so you've heard something, but you don't see anything visual that corroborates what you hear. You just hear it. But then you see what looks like, Luke doesn't say it was actually fire. If it was actually fire, it might have burned the house down. But he says it looks like fire. So when you see that, maybe given the fact that your mind is already going towards the Holy Spirit, what do you start to think about when you see fire? You might think about Moses and the burning bush, right? What did God do? He made his presence known to Moses and he set a bush on fire. You might think about the fact that when God led the children of Israel through the wilderness, he he led them at night with a pillar of Fire. You might remember the verse in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that says, Our God is a consuming fire. 
You might remember that when Elijah stood toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal, God rained down fire from heaven and burned up the altar, right? One of the the symbolic representations of the presence of Yahweh is fire. So now what we've got is we've got this sound-like wind, and we've got this visual of fire. And so what are you starting to think? God's here. Are you tracking? God's here. He's in the upper room with us. And then the fire divides. And I don't know if it was actually like this, but you've probably, you know, if you've been in children's church, you know, we had the little flannel graph with all of them standing in the room like this, and there's this little, you know, <laughs> tongue of fire above there. Maybe that's what happened. I don't know. But nevertheless, it divides and rests on each one of you. What are you thinking? You know, think about this. It didn't just rest on Peter, James, and John. And they're the big three, right? They're the special forces. The religious, you know, the the elite of the Jesus followers. It rested on Mary Magdalene, a former prostitute right? It rested on all that were in that upper room, the educated and the uneducated. They were both represented in that group. The rich and the poor, both represented in that group, right? The effective communicators, i.e. Peter, James, and maybe those among them that didn't feel like they were the most effective communicators, public speakers. It was for all of them. So what are you concluding? This power, this presence, this move, this work of the Spirit that Yahweh God is doing in this moment, it's for all of us. I really thought I'd get more amens in that. It's for all of us. I feel feel like there's just so many Christians that think the sum total of their Christian experience is, I prayed a prayer, I got dunked in water, maybe I was dedicated as a child, I give my tithes, I go to church, and I won't go to hell when I die. That's all good. Not bad. But what if there's power for you? I didn't go to seminary. I didn't either. What if there's power for all? I think that's what they're thinking in this upper room. And then, and then, supernatural speech. They started to speak in languages they didn't know. Like, like, throw out all your Pentecostal stigma if you have it. Just wrap your mind, try to wrap your mind, ask the Lord to help you wrap your mind around this simple fact right here. They began to do something that was beyond their natural ability. And they weren't just talking about the weather. They were declaring what? Look at the end of verse 11. The mighty works of God. Can you imagine what they were thinking in that moment? If I'm there 
Here's what I'm thinking. This is the spirit. This is what Jesus promised. This is the fulfillment. This is God's work. God's doing something. God's here. And I would also be thinking to myself, you know what? Jesus said that we were going to be his witnesses. But right now in this moment, I'm not entirely in control of what's going on. This is beyond my ability. Maybe bearing witness is not something that I'm going to be able to do in my own natural strength. Maybe it's going to require supernatural power. Mary and I had an unexpected date night last night. And we were sitting at dinner and we were talking about we were talking about a couple of individuals that we're praying for that we feel like the Lord's drawing, feel like the Lord's doing something. And there's some conversations that are scheduled coming up with these people. And she asked me this question. She said, do you have any sense of where we're going to start that conversation and what we're going to say and how we're going to say it? And I said to her, I said, yeah, I think so. But I said, you know what? Just the, more I, the longer I do this and the more I read Scripture and the more I consider things like what's happening right here, here's all I'm simply inclined to do. Pray and show up. Pray and show up. You know me. I, I don't think we any, in any way, shape, form, or fashion get to excuse ourselves from growing in biblical knowledge. Right? That's, that's a given. That needs to be at a foundational level that we are just constantly letting this word abide in our hearts. But participation with Jesus in his kingdom work is not something that we can scheme ourselves. It just can't be done. And so therefore, I think if we are, listen, what were they doing in their waiting? We looked at this last week when they were waiting on the power and the promise to be fulfilled. They were constantly praying and they were digging into scripture. What if we just took that approach? Yes, for the benefit of our own soul. We're just constantly praying, constantly leaning in and depending on the power of the Spirit and digging into the Word of God, letting it be stored up in our hearts like David says in the Psalms. And then when an invitation comes from Jesus to participate with him, keep praying and show up. Because if he's really there, guess what? It's his harvest. It's his harvest. We're going to look at this in two weeks. After this first event, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to breaking of bread, and to prayers, and to fellowship, and eating together with glad and sincere hearts in each other's homes. And this little phrase, which just, man, it like, it screams at me every time I see it. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Spirit has showed up. There's a sound like wind. Yahweh is doing this. There's fire. And he's doing it in, in and for and to all of them. And they all are declaring the mighty works of God 
in a way, in a fashion that is beyond their natural ability. So I ask the question, again, of myself and of all of us, am I an effective evangelist, proclaimer of the good news? And and a lot of times people excuse themselves from really getting serious about that. Christians excuse themselves because they would say things like, well, I'm I'm not a very effective communicator. I'm not an outgoing person. They might say, well, I don't know the scriptures well enough. I don't know the Bible well enough. Those are not, I wouldn't say those are things that are just throwaway. I think we all have different giftings. And we certainly need to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me just ask you this question. If the word evangelist simply means a proclaimer of good news, ask yourself this too. Do you struggle when you have good news in other facets of your life to share that with others? I don't. Somebody, a good friend of mine said this one time, if you, know, if you talk to Bradley for five minutes, you're going to know everything that's good and bad in his life. Because I kind of wear everything on my sleeve, right? If I've got good news to share, I'll tell you. So if we really do believe the gospel to be the greatest news ever in human history, that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, came, was born as a man, lived, died on a cross, as a propitiatory, wrath-exhausting sacrifice for the sins of God's people, came through death and out the other side, rose again to new life, the firstborn from among the dead, that we might follow him in that kind of life, ascended to the Father, far above all rule, power, and authority, was given the name that is above every name, poured out the Holy Spirit on us, You might say, well, this was for the 120. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. This is in Peter's sermon. We'll get to this next week. Peter's talking to the crowd, and he says to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and what? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. It is not insignificant that we dedicated babies this morning. Our our anticipation is that these babies we prayed over and these families we prayed over, these babies are going to grow up and be spirit-filled evangelists. Lovers of Jesus who can't help but it, that love and affection spill over and with supernatural power proclaim the glories of Christ. His promises for you and for your children and for all that the Lord God will call to himself. We've been given the same spirit. So if we're not effective evangelists, I think we've got to ask the question why. And we're going to wrestle with that more next week. But I just want us today, we're going to end right here. It's just like one of those episodes that just absolutely leaves you hanging. We're just going to meditate for a week. I invite you to, I hope you will, meditate for a week on this one fact right here, biblical fact. The same spirit 
that came like wind, like fire, and with power, and empowered the likes of the apostle Peter to proclaim the glories of Christ and see 3,000 people saved in one day lives in you and lives in me. Could it be that there's more for us to lean into? Could it be that maybe what we've been talking about is actually true and possible, that we could go about ordinary days doing ordinary things with anything but an ordinary expectation? Come back next week. Let's dig in more. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, I think it is a very important spiritual discipline that we meditate on these things. And I ask you, Lord, to lead us, your people, in Holy Spirit-saturated meditation on what happened 2,000 years ago that really frames our understanding and our expectation of what it might mean to participate with you in your kingdom agenda. And on this Pentecost Sunday, Lord, we remember something that happened, but we also anticipate that something will continue to happen. Namely, that you, Holy Spirit, would empower us beyond our natural ability to bear witness of the risen Christ. That is what we're called to, all of us. And so I pray that you would lead us to think about that, to pray about that. And if there are people that we know and love that we're praying for already, that maybe you've led us to pray for, maybe we've already had conversation with that don't know you, that, Lord, we would consider again how it is that you might want to empower us beyond our natural ability to be proclaimers of good news. So, Lord, I thank you for that, and I thank you for today. I thank you for the babies. I thank you for leading us to pray for those who are weeping this Memorial Day weekend. I thank you for all the families and visitors that are gathered here today. And now as we scatter in your name, may what also goes with us is the expectation that you want to make yourself known through us. It's in your name we pray. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z-Faith.com, where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com.